Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us now is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and unmanned systems and joins us most Mondays. Uh, Sam, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Great to be back. Uh, before we get started, our program today is brought to you by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner and the largest aggregator of U.S. Department of Defense cyber data. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Uh, Sam, uh, days after the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant uh, for Vladimir Putin uh, for uh, child uh, trafficking, the abduction uh, of Russian uh, of Ukrainian children uh, that have been taken uh, to Russia. Uh, and uh, adopted even by the woman who's in charge of uh, Russia's uh, children's programs. Um, the Russian leader today was welcomed warmly by Xi Jinping uh, in Moscow uh, for an imp what is seen as an important summit. China is trying to help Russia as much as possible without alienating the rest of the world. News reports suggest uh, China is sending body armor, quote unquote, hunting rifles, uh, commercial electronics, as we've discussed, drone parts, uh, while Russia is sending uh, to China enriched uranium and obviously energy. What's your sense and, and the CNA team sense on what the two are going to be achieving in this visit? Because the United States and other nations already have warned that it would be a red line if China was to sort of openly su supply Russia with military hardware. Well, undoubtedly, this is a very important visit. Obviously, China, uh, tra Chinese uh, leader traveling to Moscow is a sign of um, political support to uh, the Russian Federation and to Vladimir Putin. We don't yet know the full extent of the actual military support. As we discussed in the past, a lot of technologies that end up flowing from China to Russia are in fact very difficult to interdict. Many of the key components are dual use, such as microchips and microelectronics. But according to the uh, Russian state media, there are big plans for uh, Xi Jinping's visit in uh, Russia. They are supposed to sign, according to, um, according to the TASS, state news agency. They're supposed to sign a joint declaration on, quote unquote, deepening the partnership between the two countries, as well as a joint statement on a plan to develop key areas of Russian-Chinese economic cooperation through 2030. And again, Russian state media points to uh, the possibility that some uh, nearly a dozen documents on different types of Sino-Russian cooperation will also be signed. Again, signing documents is one thing, the actual cooperation is something else. Uh, but uh, it is uh, likely that uh, Xi is going to sort of step uh, lightly between Russian needs for China's approval and uh, United States and, and sort of global um, condemnation of uh, China's uh, more overt support to Russia if that were to happen. As we discussed in the past and has been highlighted numerous times, China benefits a lot more from its trade with the United States and the world than it does uh, with Russia, although it does get very key raw materials and other components from the Russian Federation. So this visit obviously is going to be watched very closely and possibly every word and every statement is going to be scrutinized. 
uh, and I should say, right, I mean, the, the word is ever present, cooperation in the military technical sphere, uh, which, uh, which uh, I always get a, a little bit of a, a laugh at, even though it's very unfunny. Um, let me just ask you very uh, just broadly, right? I mean, international sanctions have been trying to um, minimize uh, the flow of um, uh, technology to the Russians. Uh, a lot of it is going through, um, uh, you know, commercial American technology is making it uh, to Russia through Turkey, for example, through Central Asian republics that are buying up washing machines, for example, and stripping the electronics and sending them over. And then the Chinese doing much the same because they do have a very robust uh, commercial electronics business. Is this an unstoppable trade? I mean, does does basically Russia end up getting all the components that it needs to build weapons? Its factories are running 24-7. Is there really a way of stopping these sort of electronics from making it to Russia and making it into Russian weapons? Well, that's what the U.S. Treasury Department is trying to determine right now. There are a lot of efforts coming from the U.S. Treasury in trying to identify, track, and interdict supply chains and actual end-user uh, products from reaching Russia. But what you just mentioned kind of uh, really highlights the scope and the difficulty of really trying to monitor this global effort because a lot of these components that end up in Russian weapons and systems are in fact commercial and you and dual use. And they're very difficult to interdict and very difficult to stop because they are present in all manner of technologies and services. And has been highlighted by numerous research and uh, articles and exposés in the US media, a lot of countries serve either as land corridors and may or may not be aware of the actual products that are flown to Russia. And the end users themselves that sell these products may not be aware where these products are going to end up, precisely because they're not necessarily going to Russia uh, as the final destination, but to other countries, which then ship them via uh, land corridors. And again, it's South Caucasus, former Soviet Republic, certainly Central Asia. So this is a global effort, probably unprecedented in scope. And uh, obviously, U.S. Treasury is trying to monitor and stay on top of it. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, in uh, indeed, uh, and uh, the folks, uh, good folks at the Royal United Services Institute have done incredible work tracking uh, the Western uh, electronics that have made it into Russian weapons over the past several decades. Um, let me ask you about the progress uh, on the front. Uh, Vladimir uh, Putin just visited Mariupol, uh, where he was actually uh, heckled. Uh, so that was interesting. A video popped up and then dropped off with uh, somebody saying, you know, this is all fake or, or something like that. Um, the, the Russian losses have simply been staggering. Uh, despite all the bluster, the swagger, the unprecedented resources, um, the, the Russian casualty rates have been phenomenal. I mean, some of these videos are... You know, you're not sure what's faked, what's a deep fake or what's not, uh, but they awfully look real and pretty much suicidal most of the time. Ukrainians are still holding on. Uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin is back to criticizing um, the, the entire system for somehow holding him back, despite the, you know, the, even the brutality of his own fighters can't seem uh, to push the ball forward. What's the latest from the front and how is this going? Because it looked like the Russians were going to gain ground. A lot of concern on NATO's part that the Ukrainians were expending too much ammunition uh, at unsustainable rates. Uh, the Ukrainians have been saying, look, this is a great opportunity to kill as many Russians as possible. And we're going to keep doing it, as we've been discussing for many weeks in the meat grinder that Bakhmut has become. What's the latest on the front? And is this conflict at this point relatively frozen? And is there any penalty to guys, you know, for guys like Prigozhin, where the New York Times runs a story that his actual plan is to unseat Putin 
And it's not like Putin's not reading the New York Times, right? Which is sort of fascinating. Talk about ego. Well, we keep coming back to the Bakhmut battle uh, for several weeks at this point, which indicates how much effort Russia is actually expanding there. And yes, you're right. There is concern from NATO um, that uh, Ukraine's uh, defense of Bakhmut may ultimately be unsustainable with respect to expanding uh, human and material resources. Russians intend on pursuing and pushing forward in Bakhmut. They need that victory. And despite logical uh, analysis of or objective analysis of losses, both human and, uh, and weapons and systems losses, uh, one would conclude that um, this attack ought to be finished at one point, but Russians do not intend to stop. They Again, they need that victory, and uh, it appears that they're going to expend as many resources around Bakhmut as is necessary to score what they think is going to be a decisive victory against the Ukrainian military. Um, what do you think is going to be next? I think that's a very good question. Uh, it is It is difficult to predict whether Russian military now has enough resources for any type of a significant spring offensive, having expended so much around Bakhmut. But the Ukrainians are also noting that the Russian attacks around Bakhmut, even with Wagner forces, are becoming more organized. One of the Telegram channels noted that uh, Russian soldiers, Wagner soldiers in the Bakhmut are attacking in waves at the first wave attacks, another wave retrenches, the second wave that comes up builds fortifications, uh, smaller Wagner units are using small drones for conducting intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance and so on and so forth. And so they inch forward in these waves and at the same time they keep sort of uh, entrenching around that area. So it's very difficult to see whether Russian military does have enough resources now for any significant breakthrough. So the, the attention shifts to the Ukrainians. Can they shift attention away from Bakhmut elsewhere? Do they have enough resources for conducting a spring offensive that everyone is waiting to happen? Um, very quickly, give us a sense, right? There's a new law to try to shut people like Prigozhin and others up, right? Whether from the top or the bottom. Right. A few, a few days ago, Vladimir Putin signed a law which introduces prison terms and significant financial fines for what they think is discrediting or spreading fake information about Russian military operation in Ukraine. What's interesting is that this law now spreads to criticizing private military corporations like the Wagner Group. And so uh, this is a small victory of sorts for Prigozhin, who, who gets to sort of uh, enforce uh, his own brand of... Uh, patriotism on people. And he now gets to sort of monitor who gets to criticize him and to what extent. Earlier, there were significant uh, critiques of Wagner operations and Prigozhin himself coming from different types of telegram channels. This law harkens back to the Soviet laws that had lengthy prison terms and very significant consequences for people criticizing the Soviet government, the Soviet rule, even jokes about Soviet leadership, past and present, were also part of that law. So the introduction of this uh, law or uh, its reintroduction anew is supposed to pour cold water on anyone seeking to uh, have second thoughts about what Russia is doing in Ukraine and what the Russian military is or is not doing in that war. 
Um, let me uh, ask you one last question. And uh, obviously, in the time uh, since we last spoke, uh, Russia managed to down uh, a US MQ-9 Reaper reconnaissance aircraft. Uh, many questioning what the right way to respond uh, to that is, and the administration is getting good marks from folks on that, uh, as well as the utility of medium altitude, long endurance uh, aircraft like that, although it depends on the airspace you're operating on. This one was an in international airspace. From your standpoint, as an expert on unmanned systems from the very biggest to the very smallest, is there a line, right? Does size matter in the response? Um, you know, is an RQ-4 sort of the red line as opposed to a $50 million uh, Reaper or, you know, a $4 million by Rocktar, right? Is, is there, because even a very small drone can deliver strategic effects now, right? What's the way to sort of think about the space and what deserves a response and what kind of response in the event that an unmanned system is down? I think this is something that's going to be discussed right now at the highest levels. The whole point of launching an uncrewed aerial vehicle, a UAV, is to take the pilots out of dangerous situations, to replace the pilot, if possible, on certain types of missions, like the reconnaissance missions conducted by American drones in the Black Sea. Obviously, downing this drone is not the same as losing a piloted aircraft, and all the uh, resulting political and, uh, and security ramifications stemming from such an incident. That's why the United States has been flying drones in the Black Sea and not uh, necessarily piloted uh, ISR aircraft. So what is the level of escalation here? Obviously, small drones can also deliver a very significant ISR capability, but this war saw the loss of drones at a very staggering scale. So it appears both sides aren't necessarily concerned with losing small to mid-size uh, aerial drones. When we get to a, a UAV that costs tens of millions of dollars, again, the question we have to ask is, is that the same as losing, for example, an F-22 or an F-16 pilot in an aircraft? Is that the same as uh, losing a pilot with years and decades of experience? Is that the same as, uh, as combat aircraft engaging in unsafe practices or an actual, um, an actual aerial combat to down each other's planes? And right now, the answers are pointing to, no, it's not the same. And what we have to consider, obviously, are the cost of these uh, Reapers and M MQ-9 drones and other drones that may be at play. But once again, are we flying these drones to substitute pilots in dangerous situations? Yes, we are. So are we willing to consider the potential loss of this drone to enemy action? Yes, we are also willing to consider that because... Uh, we lost several drones over Iran, for example. Uh, relatively expensive right. and secretive drones were also downed. There was no, apparently, a public subsequent action to either destroy or recover these drones. And apparently, the Department of Defense was willing to accept the loss of this drone and this technology in lieu of um, any um, sort of the absence of any action from the country that was targeted. This, however, right. is different, right? Oh, United, okay, so United States is not at war with Iran, um, and the United States is not at war with Russia in a direct sense. But this is different because now Russians are saying all the UAVs, fly, all the Western and American UAVs flying near Russian borders in the Black Sea and other areas are contributing to the war effort against Russia and should be considered po possible and legitimate targets. So this now kind of shifts the focus from uh, a drone that is uh, flying an unmanned mission to replace a human pilot to a drone that is potentially part of a larger effort seen by a targeted country 
as an adversarial asset. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Sam, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Vago. And a word from our sponsors. Our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell, Leonardo DRS, and HII. Sponsor our global coverage, Fortress Information Security. Sponsors our weekly cyber report, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And our coverage of the Air and Space Forces Association's annual Aerospace Warfare Symposium was brought to you by GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon Chemical. And our coverage from South by Southwest was sponsored by Bell and Leonardo DRS. And joining us now is my good friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Great to have you back on. Always a pleasure, Bago. Uh, indeed, the pleasure is uh, all mine. You've done a tremendous amount of work, a lot of headlines, obviously, uh, from uh, political sentiments about continuing support for Ukraine, obviously the AUKUS deal, uh, which was very significant. And then, of course, the details of uh, the budget. Last week, you joined us. Uh, you've had uh, a full week uh, to digest uh, some of the details, and the devil is always in the details. Uh, give us your sense uh, on uh, the budget, where it's heading. What do you like? What do you not like? Well, I think you know, just the starting point is kind of the macro backdrop because OMB posted more their <clears throat> kind of their analytical perspective and their historic backdrop. And I think it's important for anybody in the defense sector to just appreciate this broader fiscal picture. Um, there is it's kind of a chart book I put out, but um, this was last week. You know, one of the things that I think is intriguing because <clears throat> we have a pretty important Federal Reserve uh, decision coming up this week about interest rates. You know, is is the Fed going to raise interest rates and continue to try and fight inflation, or as this uh, financial crisis that's erupted, um, some of the banks is that going to going to cause the Fed to pause? But the thing that I found intriguing was <clears throat> if you look at interest outlay projections that. Uh, the Office of Management budget made and divide that by the uh, public debt outstanding that they project. <clears throat> They're assuming kind of across all maturities of the different tranches of debt that it's about a blended rate of three and a half percent. You know, is that reasonable? Maybe if if inflation continues to be, uh, you know, worse than the two percent goal that the Fed has, uh, then rates might be higher, and that's going to be another demand on federal spending. Um, so I, I, I just think that's one little facet of this. I think the other thing, you know, there's the bigger picture of mandatory spending, defense, non-defense, interest outlays. Um, you know, the House GOP has got a policy retreat this week in Florida. You know, they're supposed to come up with a budget resolution uh, probably, I think Michael had talked about this in your show, Michael Hershon, about, you know, is that budget resolution going to be in April or May? You know, how they possibly get to um, a spending framework <clears throat> that leaves Medicare and Social Security intact, um, defense spending untouched and, and mandatory veteran spending untouched. It, it's it's impossible without completely gutting the rest of the federal government. So, we're kind of back to this bigger question, you know, if if debt or really the interest on the debt is the big question here, what are you going to do to fix it? And I think that's still an open question. We're in the, in the 
you know, frame it. People can talk about defense spending increases. Um, people are going to talk about non-defense spending and how important that's going to be. But um, this interest rate question, I think, is has got to be front and center in people's minds when they think about the defense outlook. Uh, and and it's going to be very interesting to see, right? Because our borrowing limit is constrained because the Hill is not raising the borrowing limit, right? I mean, so right. the ability for us to sort of, uh, you know, spend our way through this or cover large numbers of FDIC depositors, right? I mean, you can already see uh, the political fight. It should stay at 250, uh, right? It's 250 per uh, employer or personal account, right? Uh, yeah. As opposed to saying, as we did in, in SVB's case, Silicon Valley Bank's case, we're going to cover uh, the the total amount that people have in their accounts. Uh, a reminder, right? I mean, the reason we have banking regulations and FDIC uh, guarantees is for you to spread your money around, whether you know you're a regular person or or, or General Motors. What is um, the uh, you know your sort of budget raw budget analysis uh, ultimately about what what they got right, what they didn't get right, and and where you expect Congress to end up in this, even though it's early days? Well, Bongo, yeah, the devil is still in the details, right? The budget justification books just started to get published. There are, there was a tranche that was released over the weekend. That's frankly, we're going to be spending a lot of my time this coming week. Um, look, you know, there are obvious points of pushback already. Uh, and some of this is going to come out. There's a House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee hearing with senior DOD leadership. Uh, I believe it's this coming Thursday. So you're going to start to see the framing on the pushback. You know, does the budget cover inflation? Probably not, but that's going to be an open debate about the, the rate of inflation. And again, you know, what other belt tightening can take place? Um, yeah, the, the, the ship buys go up, but they're really smaller ships, you know, kind of a static number of DDG-51s, you know, that's going to be pushback. Although DOD and some of the briefing, you know, there, there's still a, an open question about, about the domestic shipyard capacity to hire these, um, to handle these higher shipbuilding rates. Um, the budget justification books, you know, I think for better or for worse, um, you know, what I'll be looking at is, okay, you know, are there really some lanes for these new entrants to start to grow um, and scale up? Uh, you know, if we're going to be buying more F-15 EXs, that's not exactly a lane uh, that, that these smaller companies can participate in. And the budget justification books are only going to tell me so much because clearly there's going to be stuff going on in, in classified programs and also it could be a pretty interesting lane for these companies to grow but maybe you can back into some of those numbers and what 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 the the total spend might be is that growing faster about the same pace of the budget uh it is uh uh, certainly going to be interesting uh, to uh, watch. Um, AUKUS, uh, give us your quick sense uh, on that uh, deal, because as we heard from Sash Tusa of agency partners yesterday, you know, the Virginia class is a pretty powerful gateway drug. <laughs> so his sense is, you know, once the Australians do acquire a number of Virginia classes, are they really going to be interested in sort of developing a new class of submarine and only a few years later uh, shifting to it? Uh, and so there are all sorts of questions. I mean, everybody agrees the forward deployment of U.S. and British submarines uh, is a great idea. The notion of developing uh, a, a Australian submarine capability is important. But then whether or not it's happening at the time, at the speed of relevance, right? The deterrence window may be a little bit earlier than a little later. What's your sense? And is this oh, kind oh, of I'm a complicated... Yeah, it, it was an event that Carnegie Endowment held last week that I wrote up. And I thought, 
you know, particularly Bill Greenwald, who uh, has been around this for quite some time, you know, he was defense industrial policy and then helped write a lot of the defense reform legislation uh, when he was on Senate Armed Services Committee under Senator McCain's leadership. Um, you know, he made some very good points about, you know, you've got to reform ITAR to allow this vision. It's not so much the submarines themselves, it's the second pillar where there's just, there's going to be more cooperation between uh, particularly the U.S. and Australian defense sectors. And I, I thought Bill just made some very good points about this is fine in principle, but you have cultures, you have you have ways of doing things, and you have an ITAR process that <clears throat> could really stymie a lot of what AUKUS intends to achieve. So I think it's good that Bill flagged that, and I would I kind of agree, yeah, the submarines are the headline part of this, but it's that second pillar when you start getting into cooperation between the US, uh, the UK and Australia on quantum, on hypersonics, on uh, unmanned undersea that Australia actually has some pretty interesting capabilities. And, um, you know, if you stymie that, um, that, that kind of cascades and, you know, as much as there's promise from AUKUS, that promise won't be delivered if, if there aren't underlying changes that allow that free flow and cooperation to take place. Um, I, I it, it is it is interesting. And as uh, uh, Brian Clark of the Hudson Institute and, and folks have heard me say this over the last couple of days, right, that, you know, if you're shooting for the stars and you hit the moon, that's not bad. Uh, and one of the other important attributes of this agreement is it does include quantum artificial intelligence, technological development, hypersonics. Uh, and that's why I think it needs to be expanded to include our Japanese and French allies we're absolutely political to create this sort of broader uh, pillars uh, in uh, the the Asia Pacific. Uh, if if we're going to continue uh, deterring, not just deterring, but also in, improve our overall capabilities. Um, gr great note over the weekend on strategic weapons and the end of uh, arms control. I know that there were a lot of drivers uh, for that, but this is also an issue you've been thinking about for for a while. What are the things we need to be paying attention to as Xi Jinping uh, visits uh, somebody who is now, I guess, a, a wanted human rights criminal, Vladimir Putin? Look, new start, you know, the, the Russian decision to basically back out of some of the confidence building and inspection protocols and the agreement. I mean, I, I think it's stick a fork in it. You know, the, the current political environment uh, between the U.S. and Russia uh, it's very difficult for me to see how New Start is extended beyond February 2026 when it currently expires. Um, I think there's also the very simple fact that you have people in the Senate um, who see arms control agreements as a uh, you know an infringement on U.S. sovereignty and U.S. flexibility, and you know. In a, in a funny way, New Start is kind of the last of the uh, arms control agreements that had been negotiated between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. I think it's going to die a natural death. The question it raises, Vago, is then what? You know, you've got China, which isn't party to any strategic agreement. You know, can they eventually be brought in? Um, how do you deter both Russia and China with, with the current nuclear force, you know, do you need to build more warheads? Are you gonna put more warheads on individual 
uh, missiles, ICBM, submarine launch ballistic missiles, uh, are, are you going to have to start thinking about more platforms to deliver those weapons? Are we going to have another discussion about missile defense? So it's out there. Um, it's really kind of, a, I think, probably two or three budget cycles away. It'll probably get filtered through the 2024 U.S. presidential election, but it's coming up. And um, I, I just think it's something that people need to th start thinking through about some of these different scenarios and, and what it may mean from an investment standpoint. And Byron, give us your sense uh, on the look on the week ahead, uh, because there are some interesting uh, congressional hearings in particular. Well, I mentioned the House Appropriations uh, Defense Subcommittee hearing. There's a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing on recruitment. And I, I think, you know, the Air Force uh, Secretary Kendall said at AFA that you attended that, uh, you know, the Air Force is going to miss their recruiting goal. So, as much as we may be entering a softer economy, depending on the ramifications of these these multiple banking blowups, um, you know, is it going to be enough that really uh, tilts uh, people more inclined to join the military to do so because they just don't have other options? Uh, but I think there there are more basic questions about. Uh, generational differences of military service, and, and I, I hope some of that gets aired at the Senate Armed Services Committee hearing. Um, <clears throat> the Army Chief of Staff McConnell is going to be speaking at Brookings. I'm sure that same issue about recruitment and retention is going to be coming up. Um, and, you know, I, I expect we'll see, uh, well, just this broader macro backdrop about Markets are up today, uh, Monday the 20th, on some relief about the Credit Suisse UBS deal that the Swiss um, kind of hammered together. Uh, you know, but are we really through the woods on this yet? And that's something that just people have to think about more broadly um, and how that could affect the defense outlook in the United States and beyond. And then finally, what comes of this G uh, Putin meeting in Moscow? I don't think a whole lot's going to change, but uh, the weather is starting to warm up in in uh, Ukraine, and you know we're going to be on the cusp of uh, a lot more speculation about what Ukraine could do from an offensive standpoint this spring and summer. Are, are you uh, concerned? You know, one of the things you also wrote about, and I mean this as apolitically as possible, uh, Governor DeSantis uh, having some very critical comments matching very closely what former President uh, Trump uh, has been uh, saying as well. And and some on the right of the party have been talking about about you know the need to no longer support Ukraine, that it's not a core right. I mean, mirroring a lot of uh, Putin's uh, language and, and rhetoric on this. Is this something that's at this point a boutique issue and that folks can talk to multiple audiences, right? That he can still be supportive while delivering this message? Or do you see this as something more destructive? It's uh, potentially very destructive. I mean, if I was in Kiev or or Warsaw or any of the Baltic states um, or Helsinki, I'd be extremely concerned about that. I would wonder how reliable an ally the U.S. will be um, if DeSantis or someone like DeSantis was to become president in 2024. And frankly, if you couch Russia-Ukraine as a territorial dispute, well, isn't Taiwan just a territorial dispute with China too? So 
this strain of isolationism can really have some very negative impacts on the U.S. defense sector and perceptions of how the U.S. would uh, would stand up with its allies. So I, I frankly think it was a very alarming statement, um, and hopefully, you know, there are some changes <clears throat> before the presidential election to kind of maybe uh, understand what what comments like that could do. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on uh, the program and already looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vago.